So throughout the summer, we're going to be taking a prolonged look together at the book of Colossians. Colossians is a letter in the New Testament written by the Apostle Paul to a small church in a town called Colossae. It was a church that he had never been to, that he would never visit, but nevertheless, he had heard about their faith and so took the opportunity to write a letter to encourage them and to invite them deeper into the hope that they have in Jesus Christ. It's a letter that's unrelenting in its focus in on Jesus. For Paul, everything comes back to Jesus, to who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And so as we continue to study this letter, we'll also continue to contemplate what it means that we too were created and saved through him and for him. We're going to pick up right where we left off last week in Colossians 1. So as we prepare to open the word together, I want to invite you to just take a moment to get ready. We live our lives with a lot of distractions, with short attention spans, and it takes focus and effort to pay attention to one thing for a while. So take a moment to do whatever you need to, to listen well. To words from the book we love. Once you were alienated from God, and you were enemies with God in your minds, which was shown through your evil actions. But now he has reconciled you by his physical body through death in order to present you before God as people who are holy and faultless and without blame. But you need to remain well-established and rooted in faith and not shift away from the hope given in the good news that you heard. This message has been proclaimed throughout all creation under heaven, and I, Paul, became a slave of this good news. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. The passage this morning has three verses, and each one has an idea that I want to focus in on this morning. We're going to talk this morning about these three things, about being alienated, about being reconciled, and about being rooted. Alienated, reconciled, and rooted. First verse went like this. Once you were alienated from God, and you were enemies with God in your minds, which was shown through your evil actions, you were alienated. It's important to remember Paul's writing this letter to a church, to a group of Christians, and he's writing to them and here reminding them of what used to be true, of their past state. This is who you once were. You were alienated from God and enemies. But of course, that wasn't always the case, was it? If you go back far enough into the story of creation, in Genesis 1 and 2, we find that humanity was created not to be enemies with God, but to be partners, but to be friends, 
co-creators working alongside God, using their gifts to help bring creation to its fullness and fruition in God. We were created for intimate community and connection. Adam and Eve walked with God in the cool evening breeze. We were created to be with God, to be for God, to glorify God and enjoy God forever. But there was a snake, a tricky snake, who asked a tricky question. Came to Eve one day and said, did God really say you can't eat the fruit of any of the trees in the garden? She said, no, that's ridiculous. God said we could eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but not of that one tree in the middle of the garden. God said if we eat the fruit of that tree on that day, we'll surely die. The snake said, you won't die. God knows that when you eat of it, you'll become like God, knowing good and evil. So when Eve saw that the fruit was good, she took some and ate it. And she gave it to her husband, who was with her the whole time, and he ate it. And there began our alienation from God. For instead of choosing God's ways and God's purposes, Adam and Eve chose to take things upon themselves and to do it their way. They chose to be like gods themselves instead of letting God be God. And so they soon found themselves out of the garden. That relationship with God that used to be so close and connected was broken. Their relationship with each other was also shattered. And their relationship with the earth and with creation was now filled with burden and toil. The people of God have told this story for thousands of years in order to explain something about who we are and where we now find ourselves in the world. That we were made for God. We were made to enjoy God and to live with God, but soon have chosen instead to live for ourselves. And so we now experience the fruit of that decision. Life with ourselves. Life separated from God, cut off, lost, alienated, Paul says. And we are, all of us, born somehow strangers of God. This alienation is our autopilot, our our default setting. It's our birthright. Paul says, once you were alienated from God, enemies with God in your minds, which was shown by your evil actions. And really, this is helpful because a lot of people, when they talk about sin and being separated from God, it's about those actions. Sins are the things we do we weren't supposed to do. See, there's this list of things that you can't do, and if you do one of those, that's sin, which means we then argue a lot about what's on that list and what's not on that list. But as Paul describes it, those actions are just an overflow of something going on deep within us. That we are enemies of God in our minds. In Paul's day, there wasn't the same kind of uh, separation between the mind and the heart. We are enemies with God inside ourselves. Our hearts are twisted, pointed in instead of up. In confirmation, when we talk about sin, we use our bodies. We say we were made to worship God, like this, arms out and open, offering all that we are up to God. 
And yet we have turned in on ourselves, clutching and grasping what is ours and focused in only on ourselves. Our sin runs far deeper than our actions. It has to do with the default settings of my heart. See, I can get through a day without committing a sin like adultery, but lust? I can get through a day without stealing something, but not without being jealous of the nice things other people have that I want. There are a lot of really nice cars that drive down Wyckoff Ave every single day. There's a Porsche restoration place right up here. Our children, Owen and Hannah, just turned two, and as far as I know, they haven't murdered anyone yet. But there's the same fire behind their eyes when one takes the other's toy, and in rage, they scream and hit and push. The sins, the evil actions, are just the symptoms of a deeper illness within us. We are enemies with God in our minds, and so alienated from God. Some people talk about this separation from God as though God were just angry with us for not obeying him. And so God won't talk to us or hang out with us at all because we broke one of God's rules, and how dare we? I don't think that's the most faithful way to picture it. So maybe this will help. Does anybody know what these are? Kids? Anybody? They're wood blocks, but they're more than that. They're those fancy magnet wood blocks. I don't know how they work. There must be magnets inside. Um, They're magnets, and magnets have poles. And if you put the right side together, they stick and they attract. They actually kind of hold each other. This is what we were created for. We were made for God. We were made to be in a relationship with God. We were made to be filled with God. We were made to live our lives with and for God. We heard last week, all things are created through him and for him. And yet we have turned away. We've chosen ourselves. And so we find that the same magnets that used to attract now, it's not just that they don't stick together, they actually kind of repel. They push each other away. See, evil simply can't exist in God's presence. It's not that God is mad because we've broken an arbitrary list of rules and he's kind of petty. Evil can't exist in God's presence. It will be utterly consumed or destroyed if it made its way in by God's incredible holiness. And so instead of allowing us to be destroyed by our sin, God removes us from God's presence until something can be done about that sin and we can then be brought home again. And that's what gets us to the next verse. Our second verse begins with a but, always a harbinger of good news. But, now he has reconciled you by his physical body through death in order to present you before God as a people who are holy, faultless, and without blame. Now he has reconciled you. Reconcile is one of those words we don't use very often, but it means to bring two things back together that were separated. It's flipping the magnet around. It's that friend with whom you've been fighting, maybe you've even blocked them on Instagram, and it's been a few days, and you finally decide you need to forgive them, and you need to make things right. 
and be reconciled. Reconciliation is bringing back together two things that were separated, that were alienated. It's coming home again. And this is exactly what God has done in Jesus, brought us home again. And how did God do it? By his physical body through death. Not by teaching us the right religious techniques, how to pray correctly, how often you have to come to church or read your Bible. It wasn't by teaching us how to be nice to each other that we can balance the scales of the bad things we do and the good things we do. It wasn't by a royal decree simply stating it and making it so. It wasn't by just empathizing with us in our weakness and need. It was by his physical body through death. In his flesh, in a body, in the incarnation, God became human and comes down to live a perfect, spotless, blameless, faultless, holy life. He lived a life in close communion and connection with God like we were made to. And yet in the end, it goes up to die on a cross and then rise from the dead. And this is gospel. This is good news. That as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, God takes him who knew no sin to be sin for us on the cross so that we might become his righteousness. That Jesus, even though he's perfect, dies like a terrible sinner, takes on the punishment we deserve, dying for sin. And because Jesus was perfect, somehow that righteousness somehow gets transferred onto us that when God looks at us, God no longer sees enemies, but Christ and his perfect, spotless righteousness. We who were alienated from God because of our sin are now presented as holy and blameless and without fault and welcomed home. This is the wonderful exchange Christ has made with us. That he takes on what is ours and gives us what is his. That he takes our sin and our punishment and we get his righteousness. This is how John Calvin described it 500 years ago. He said, This is the wonderful exchange which by his measureless benevolence Christ has made with us. That becoming a son of man with us, he's made us sons of God with him. That by his descent to earth, he's prepared an ascent to heaven for us. That by taking on our mortality, he's conferred his immortality upon us. That accepting our weakness, he's strengthened us by his power. That receiving our poverty unto himself, he's transferred his wealth to us. That taking the weight of our iniquity upon himself, our sin which oppressed us, he has clothed us with his righteousness. That's the gospel. That's the good news. That Jesus took everything that was ours and gave us everything that was his. And the best part about that good news is that he did it for you. Paul doesn't say you were alienated from God, but Jesus opened a way that you can now reconcile yourself. He says he has reconciled you. It's done. It's accomplished. The good news isn't that if you clean yourself up, God might like you. The good news isn't the balanced scales of doing good and bad. 
your hope and my hope is tied to the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that our hostility and alienation are removed by Jesus, and we are now reconciled, brought home, brought together again. We were alienated. Christ has reconciled us. But, another turn in the third verse, but you need to remain well-established and rooted in faith and not shift away from the hope given in the good news that you heard. Remain rooted. Don't shift from the hope given you. Experts and biblical scholars think that in the background of this whole letter to the Colossians, right about that same time, there was a new emperor being crowned in Rome, a new Caesar who had the title of Lord, meaning God and Savior. And as usually happens in political turnover, this new Caesar who was to be worshipped was also lifted up as the solution to all of our problems, our hope, the one who would make it all right again. Don't shift from the hope that's been given you, Paul says. Soon we'll hear in the next couple chapters of the false teachings that have been coming into Colossae from the outside. Requirements added on to their salvation. Things you need to do, people were saying. Harsh self-denial. Worship of angels. New moon observances and other festivals. Circumcision. You need to do these things. They'll make you right with God, these teachers were saying. These are your hope. Remain rooted, Paul says. Don't shift from the hope given you in the gospel, from the hope declared throughout the world of which I, Paul, am a slave. Remain rooted in your hope. Where is our hope? Is it in politics? This last week, one half of our nation saw 20 options up on a stage over two nights, many picking one as this is our best hope of fixing everything that's wrong. The other half of the nation is aligned behind a slogan, Make America Great Again. Where's our hope? Don't shift from the hope given in the gospel. Is our hope in politics? Is it in our religion? Our religious fervor and observance, coming to church enough, doing enough good things, giving enough money away, praying and reading your Bible often enough. Where's your hope? Is it in your career and your wealth and their promise to sustain you and make you safe and secure? Is it in the economy? If we sacrifice just enough to make it strong enough, everything will be good for all of us? Is it in medicine? It promises cures and a, a prolonged life and freedom from suffering. Is it in technology that promises us wonder and limitless knowledge and experience? Is it our kids on whom we stake so much of our future? Is it a spouse whom we believe will complete us? Where is your hope? Because all this that Christ has done, he has already done. Now he has reconciled you, Paul said. It's accomplished. Christ has died and risen again. He's offered his body in death to reconcile you to God again. But God has never wished to trample over us in saving us. 
He's chosen to respect our will and our decisions. He doesn't want robots who have to come to him. And so he respects our choices. Which means while this has already been done for us, God still allows us to live as though it's not true. To choose the lie of alienation over the truth of reconciliation. And in the end, then, to receive not the hope of Christ, but that in which we've placed our hope. That when the end comes, you get that which you've hoped for. So where is our hope? Is it in something that will last? Or in something that won't matter at all in the end? Because all these other hopes will one day disappoint you. They are grand promises. And even for a little while, they may satisfy, but they will one day disappoint you. They will let you down, and in the end, they will not matter. They turn ourselves in where we will always be found lacking. Christ is our only sure hope, our only true hope. So Paul calls us to remain rooted in faith, not shifting from this hope that we have heard in the good news of the gospel, to remain stable and steadfast in Christ that we may receive that for which we hope. Jesus. We were alienated from God. Christ has reconciled us. So remain rooted in that hope. And all three parts of that matter deeply Because if you don't know you were alienated from God, if you don't realize how deep your sin and brokenness go, if you thought you were basically a good person and good with God on your own, then what need is there for Jesus? Then what does God really have to do for you? But as you realize that you don't just slip up occasionally, but are a full-on enemy of God, then the grace of God becomes so much more compelling and beautiful and life-changing. And if you know that you're alienated, but you don't know that Christ has reconciled you, then you're either going to be working really, 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 really hard, or you've probably just given up all hope. But Christ has done everything for you already. There's nothing more required of you. There's nothing more you can add to it. All that is Jesus has become yours. And if you know you're alienated and know you're reconciled, but don't yet place your full hope in this good news, then none of it's any good. See, what makes you a follower of Jesus isn't that your parents had you baptized so many years ago. What makes you a follower of Jesus isn't that you were confirmed at some point in your childhood. What makes you a Christian isn't that you show up here enough or give enough money or do enough good stuff. What makes you a follower of Jesus is that your hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. That you root yourself in that hope so that you can live out of it and bear its fruit in your life. Friends, we were alienated from God, but Christ has reconciled us by his body through death. So let's root ourselves in that hope. Amen?
Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for all that you have done for us. We know deep down somewhere that we are not enough, that we are broken, that we have turned away from you and what you want for us. But Lord, we thank you that you've already done what's needed for us to come home. So Lord, fix our hope there in the good news of Jesus Christ, of the grace that has been poured out freely and abundantly into us in our lives, that we may live as the reconciled people of God, those brought home to you. We pray this in the name of Christ, our Savior. Amen.